Welcome everybody to the Haunted Hacker podcast number 43. I can't believe it's going by so fast. Uh, I want to welcome Robert Hansen, a good friend of mine I haven't seen in years. It's good to see you again. Yeah, um, it's in your face anyway, yeah. This week, uh, other than we're dropping a magazine in Afghanistan soon uh, to help out the people that are kind of stranded behind uh, with their uh, OPSEC and, and you know communications, uh, trying to help them out. Other than that, not a lot. Um, I'm actually in another location now, as you can tell from the, uh, the consistency of my my connection. I'm no longer hidden away in the mountains. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to let Robert introduce himself. Um, if you don't know Robert, he's a very interesting guy, and I've had the pleasure of knowing him for, God, almost 20 years now. It's been a long time. Something like that. Yeah, um, yeah it has been. So I'll let, uh, I'll let Robert go ahead and uh, take off with it. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Robert Hansen. I also go by Snake. I've been in computer security for 27, I think, years now. 27, 28, something like that. Um, and so like a lot of the stuff that we talk about today, the stuff that came out of my lab or people I know built it or something. You know, so I've been around a long time. Um, I'm probably most well-known uh, for hackers.org, uh, the, the, the real one, not at the golfing website uh <laughs> and um let's see um i started sec theory back in the day and um, web fringe for those who are back that long ago long long time ago uh and a handful of other packing sites here and there throughout the years um most recently i sold a company that i worked for that i built actually outside intel to bit discovery so now I'm sort of an aqua hire that pulled my tech and me into the company. So now I'm the CTO of BitDiscovery, uh, which is actually the CEO of that is Jeremy Grossman, who a lot of you probably know. Um, uh, and we, we too have known each other for probably 20 years or something like that. Uh, so about that, about that long. And uh, he used to be the CEO of White Hat. So it was, we were good friends because of the web application security scene, just had worked with each other and, you know, for probably 15, 20 years uh, easily at that point. So yeah, so these days I'm, I've kind of moved a little away from web app sec roots and more into network sec stuff, uh, a lot of OSN. Um, so yeah, happy to, happy to talk all about it, whatever you want to talk about. That's pretty awesome. So we met at Black Hat, I guess it was 2006 at DEF CON, um, 2006 or 2008, it was a long time ago. Yeah, probably. Um, and at that time, I think that you were with Jeremiah still at White Hat. Um, 2006? Jeez, what was I doing in 2006? Or maybe 2006. Uh, I might have, I think I was at Sec Theory at that point. 2006. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> it's a long time, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I still remember that night that, uh, that we met. I was, uh, we were at the casino at the bar and uh, swapping stories and uh, shots of uh, drinks and scotch and all kinds of good stuff. Um, so you had an interesting background as far as, you know, the web hacking and, and, you know, you got involved with hack the Pentagon at one point. Yeah. Um, well, that's an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you go ahead and tell that story? I'm sure they'd love to hear it. That's awesome. Oh yeah. This is a, this is definitely a cautionary tale for, uh, for people who do bug bounties. So I actually wasn't interested in the bug bounty at all. I, I really, truly did not care at all about it. Um, so the head of the digital services of the Pentagon is sort of a friend of a friend of mine. And he's like, and so he got wind of me through a friend. 
And he's like, oh, I want to meet this guy. So he came out um, and that's when I met the secretary of defense. Um, so he was out here in Austin, so which, which I live. And um, so they had this like big get together, like Robert, come in, you know, let's let's meet everybody and everything. And, and they kind of announced this program. And the whole idea was to get me to do it. And I'm like, I don't, what? I don't want to do that. That sounds horrible. Like, cause I, you know, I know enough about how these programs work. They will give me like this much IP space or like one website or something. I'm like, what is this? That's not how I would attack you anyway. It's not how I'd even think about attacking you. Uh, and so I, I'm right off the bat, like hard, no thanks, right? No, I'm good. I'm all good. And so um, a guy who doesn't actually have the title of CISO of the Pentagon, but effectively he's one of the CISOs of the Pentagon. He's a kind of a friend of a friend as well. And so I got talking with him and he's like, you gotta do this hack the Pentagon thing. Like you got all this crazy data and like maybe you could just feed it into us. And I'm like, not interested. I'm happy to give you the data. I don't care about that part, but I don't, I don't wanna do the bug bounty part. He's like, no, but I can't take it unless you do that. And so I'm like, no. And then one of the, one of the women who's like the kind of subordinate to the head of the digital services, she started trying to get me to do it. And I'm like, so this is like the third time I've said no at this point. She's like, really, come on, come on, come on. And I'm like, ah, screw it, fine. Fuck it, I'll do it, fine, okay? So um, the bug bounty is typically, if you're gonna be successful in a bug bounty, you should do it as soon as it opens. Like the second it opens, you should start attacking it, right? So it opened on like a Sunday night or something like that come around Wednesday, uh, <laughs> it just, just tells you how much I don't care about this. About Wednesday, I was, I happened to be on a business trip and I had a, I had a lunch that was kind of empty in the middle and I'm like, screw it, I'll just log in. What are the rules of this thing? Sure enough, it's 31 IPs. I'm like, oh, that's slightly smaller than the presence of the entire military, like just a wee bit. And, uh, and so I'm like, whatever, I'll just try to see what I can find. So I found some issue. It's one of those things that you kind of have to have an exploit on another site to take advantage of it. So typically I find that that is true in about a 10th of websites-ish, you know, something like that. So I'm like, okay, how many websites meet the description? So I went back to my data and I found 136,000 that make that criteria, which is way more than the 31 IPs, as you can imagine. So I uploaded that as an example of what the damage potential was, like it's way, way bigger than you're possibly thinking it is. And uh, I didn't really think much about it. So then that later that night, I was supposed to meet up with a friend of a friend who I'd never met before. So it was kind of one of those first meetings sort of deals. And it was and it was a woman and she flaked on it. And I'm like, whatever. So I sort of sit in my hotel room bored. And I'm like, you know what? This whole thing is stupid. The fact that they only give me 31 IPs is stupid. I'm just going to see what I can find. Just, just do it the way I would act. That Robert Hansen would actually attack them. So I pulled out 1.9 million assets out of my system at the time. I have way more than that now, but like just this enormous, enormous array of stuff. And I started looking through it, like what, what's in there? Like outdated firewalls and printers and all kinds of garbage. Like they had a Minecraft server on the 10th fleet. that was like an outdated version of Minecraft, like all kinds of crap, right? And I'm like, see, this is, this is how I'd actually attack you. <laughs> and so I uploaded this. And then, this, it was a pretty comprehensive list of things they were doing wrong. And, uh, and, and I actually had to get them to download it from my server. And when they downloaded it from my server, they were using like some outdated version of Firefox. And I'm like, come on guys. So I uploaded that as another issue. So I'm uploading all these things and they were not pleased because uh, they wanted me to paint in this like two inch by two inch square. And they wanted me to paint this perfect color of blue. And I'm out there like painting the cars on the side of the road and buildings and, you know, just, I'm an artist, you know, this is how I, this is how I function. So anyway, they were not pleased. Uh, so I found out 
uh, that the, the, I guess the general who's in charge of this whole thing really wanted to roll me up. He wanted to put me in jail. And uh, so the, basically the CISO of the Pentagon more or less and, the, and these people who are super high up in digital services or whatever basically said, you can't put this guy in jail. And I found out about that and I'm like, you know what? I am livid, right? I'm like, I'm here like just trying to help you motherfuckers, right? I'm not actually trying to hurt you. If I was, you wouldn't ever know it, right? It's one of those things. And so long story short, they decided that they weren't gonna roll me up but they didn't tell me that. So I didn't actually know. And so later on the head of the army, the secretary of the army came out and uh, so he did big dog and pony thing or whatever. But I was back in the green room before this whole thing started. And I started explaining to them, like, like you don't understand what it'd be, how bad it would be if you threw our snake in jail for hacking the Pentagon during hack the Pentagon. If you did that, did you imagine like what the ramifications and backlash would be like dropping a nuclear bomb on the Pentagon? What, what are you talking about? Like every, it would be open season. Like everyone would be hacking you. Like this is stupid. Uh, so the second you roll up in black vans, like just expect your life to get shitty. Everyone involved in this gets shitty. It's just going to be really bad for you. Like, what are you doing? Um, and, and I didn't even really attack you. I could have, obviously, but I didn't. You know, obviously I'm doing the right thing. And, uh, and the, the head of digital services response says, well, first of all, it wouldn't have been black vans. It would have been camo vans. And I'm just like, motherfucker, <laughs> you beat this guy up. And so I go out uh, and uh, I'm meeting with the head of the army, the, you know, the secretary of the army. And, uh, and so he, he's like, yo, you don't look like a hacker. You know, you were part of the, you know, hack the army thing or hack the Pentagon thing. And I, I start, start telling him the story, like just a kind of cautionary tale, right? And, uh, and the, the, the woman who's the one below the, the head of digital services, she's like back there, like waving me off, like, don't tell him the story, don't tell him the story. And, uh, and that's when I realized I was safe because if they're trying to internally sell it, they're not gonna wanna roll me up. That's just a cautionary tale internally, like you shouldn't do this kind of thing. And so they won't do it. So at that point I knew I was safe, but it was sort of one of those, like, what are you guys gonna do about it? So now they have a new policy at the Pentagon that says, if you find an issue and you report it, um, then you're not gonna go to jail. So me and one other guy, I went wide, another guy went deep, he went way too far in, he should have stopped where he was. Um, we basically the policy was created because of us. So you are now safe if you want to go attack the Pentagon, as long as you don't try to hurt them in the process. Absolutely love that story. Um, yeah. So, so I try to tell people, you know, when we got started, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of cybersecurity as it is today. Uh, ethical hacking, that certified ethical hacker didn't even exist. No. Pen testing was just beginning, um, on a legal basis. Yeah. Uh, in some places, web app sec didn't exist it was cgi security back then yeah. <laughs> i mean there, there were so many things that came up that that we helped kind of frontier and, and mold um and you know it's really weird when i talk to kids in schools now and, and they're taking cybersecurity courses in college you know those things just didn't exist and the rules didn't exist and i think at that same defcon that we met at um they filmed hackers are people too and that's what got me introduced to the FBI um, mm -hmm. when I was talking about how bad the Capitol Hill sucked and, and the laws that they were making were bullshit and a bunch of old men who didn't understand technology. Um, so that kind of put me on the radar at the same time. I think a lot of us from that time period ended up on that radar simply because of the fact that it was new and mm -hmm. we could do things that the government wasn't really sure about yet. 
Yeah. Um, and now anything you do is illegal. So you, know, <laughs> you have to be really careful. Um, I ran into a, a dude who was the, one of the chief of staff of the um, under under Obama administration. I think this was this was quite a while ago. And uh, I was trying to explain to him how stupid it was that um, I can basically a, like run a port scan and go to jail. I'm like, is that is that does that make sense? Like, if it, I'm not trying to hurt anybody in the process, I'm just trying to figure out what's out there. And he basically, I mean, it was kind of a long story, but like he more or less just said, "Sucks to be first. Like, they'll make an example out of you. You'll go to jail, but then everyone else will figure out that this is a dumb law." Like that is not a good answer. <laughs> and that's their method. That's always been their methodology too, um, which I found very shocking when I was younger. Uh, but even more so now, like not only do they put you on a radar, but they kind of track you down. Um, they let you know that they're there. Mm-hmm. So those of you who are listening that you know are new into cybersecurity, new into pen testing, be really careful about your scope creep and going outside the lines because they will nab you, uh, and it's not a fun experience. Um, speaking of which, like, so, so you and I had talked multiple times over the years about, you know, different things that have occurred and, and different stories that we had. Um, one of the, I, I think the first time I really got freaked out was when I was working for the intelligence company in Dallas and uh, some crazy shady stuff was going on. And next thing I know, the FBI is knocking on the door about some intel and some people that we were working with. Um, it was really shocking. I don't know how much of that story you want me to relay because I, I remember bits and pieces of it from from when it happened. Do you want me to re- sure. from your point yeah, of view? I, sure. I don't I don't want to I don't want to say anything out of school here, but sure. Uh, okay, well, so so I can't remember exactly how it happened, but effectively you invited me up to come hang out or something, and uh, so I drove up for the weekend or something. And I come into your office and it's a relatively small office. I would guess maybe 30, 50 people kind of working there and like not a huge office or anything. Uh, and I go into your office, your office out of the like little, you know, you had a little window office in there. And there was two computers on your desk, um, two totally different computers. Like a lot of people have like a lot of monitors, but these are two different computers. And I mean, I, normally, I guess I wouldn't think too much of that, you know, one for processing. I, I used to, eBay used to have two computers, one for my work, and then one for dev stuff that I, I definitely didn't want to mess, you know, custom libraries that might screw something up kind of thing. Um, but this seemed different because they were both IRC channels. You know, it was like, you got to do the same thing at the same time, two different windows. And uh, I'm like, what's going on here? And uh and I don't think I even said that out loud. I think you volunteered it. It's like, well, this is, I'm anonymous. I'm an ops in anonymous over here. And I'm a different op anonymous over here. And uh, I basically am getting these people to hate these people and vice versa. And, <laughs> and these are two different DSL connections coming in the back of the thing. And I'm, sure enough, these are two completely different ethernet cables going in different directions. Like that is, that is fully isolated from one another and just tippy tapping and like making them hate each other. And I'm like, hold, that's when I really grokked how vulnerable Anonymous was. I mean, I know that other governments have figured out what you guys figured out back then. I, I know that is true. And I've, I've heard other non-security people even figure that out on their own, but I'd never seen it. I mean, it was always kind of a theory that you could inject yourself and do something interesting or make, make them point in this direction. And um, I thought, I always thought it was interesting that there's anonymous like 
Jerusalem or something. And there's also J J anonymous Beirut, you know, like how could that, how could that coexist and how that could that not be co-opted? And it was really interesting watching it for the first time. So that, anyway, that's my contribution to your story. Uh, you know, and it's, it's funny that you say that too, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of those groups, you know, they, they had the same intention, but they didn't necessarily get along with each other. Um, and the government actually helped form some of those groups um, and, you know, trash the, the inner workings. Um, and that, that's pretty common. I mean, look at what Sabu did, uh, you know, turning over and becoming an informant. I mean, that's pretty commonplace. I have a quick story about that guy too. Go for so it. So I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, was brought in by Stratcore to do their forensics work when that all went down. It was like the Christmas Eve and I was up in Minnesota hanging out with my then wife and got this call and they're like, shit went down, like we needed help. And I'm like, it is literally like 20 minutes before we open presents kind of thing. You know, like it is like Christmas Eve. And I'm like, no shit, like things went down. And uh, so I'm, I'm dealing with all this shit. Finally got them all fixed, but then they wanted to have like a public announcement about it. They want to say, oh, we had Secretary come in and do some blah, 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 which I didn't really care that much about. But anyway, Sabu found it and Sabu responded like, hey, Arsnake, like, <clears throat> where's my cut? You know, like, cause I, I helped you get this business basically. And I'm like, oh, cool, man. Just give me your address and we'll be good to go. <laughs> uh, the best part was he was an informant the whole time. Like, uh, it's great. Yeah, that happens quite a bit. Um, and being in the military and seeing it from that point of view as well. I mean, I was a signal intelligence officer before operative before I went into the cyber war, like CTN rate because they didn't have it at the time. Um, but once they started building that, that cyber warfare rating, it was interesting to see how they operated. And Air Force is the same way. I mean, we were always trying to pick out in IRC which one was a Fed and which one worked for the military intelligence. Um, and they're all over the place. And I, you know, I try to tell the kids now that, you know, when you take that risk and you go into a place like that or a chat like that, you're potentially putting your life and your freedom at risk. Totally. Because, yeah, I mean, there, there is no thing as obfuscating your IP when it comes to government work. Um, they will find out who you are. Uh, so, yeah. you know, go ahead. One, 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 one quick thing. So uh, I, we don't really talk about this, but now enough time has passed. I don't think it's a big deal. Um, back when we ran hackers.org, um, we obviously had all kinds of crazy shit happening to that site constantly. It was probably the most attacked website per capita on earth. I mean, we were getting something in the neighborhood of, you know, 20 to 50,000 attacks per day, you know, various different things, right? It's all kind of across the board, some networks, some, you know, just DOS stuff. Some of it was web attacks, some of the social engineering is like all over the board, right? Constant, constant, constantly under attack. <clears throat> like worse than the biggest websites I've ever seen per capita, like on the, you know, how much traffic we got. And, uh, but we also never used a cell TLS ever. And we actually did that on, on purpose because there was a lot of attacks that didn't work quite right if you were going from HTTP to HTTPS. So for the purpose of demonstration, it really, it really wasn't advantageous to have an HTTPS site despite the security implications of it. We, we weren't trying to be secure. We were just trying to keep the site up more or less because uh, this is a hacking lab, right? <clears throat> so we, what my, business partner, James, uh, now people probably know him more as id. Good luck searching for id, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, um, he would base.
basically do port scans across the, the local networks. I mean, he was doing it constantly all the time because he's a really insanely good network security guy, like really crazy, top, 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 amazing network security guy and host security guy. And we found this box that was in our network. Um, and it was, you know, a handful of IPs off, like just outside our little net block, but, but, but right there. Um, and certainly on the same switch that at the data center, like right one right above us. And it was a carnivore box. And I don't know if you've ever seen a carnivore box, but they kind of announced themselves like we're a carnivore log in here kind of thing. And, uh, and so we're like, well, holy shit. What, I mean, what is that thing doing other than monitoring us? There's nothing else interesting on this little land, right? I mean, there's, there's us and no one else effectively. <clears throat> and, and so we're like, well, that's interesting. Uh, certainly they're monitoring all the HTTP traffic going through, which means everybody who logged in, which means everyone's password, not my password, but everyone else's password. I log in a different way. Uh, and so that's interesting. And then we moved data centers um, a handful of years later. And sure enough, a carnivore box popped up right next to our IP space again, same thing, publicly accessible. It can just find it right, it's right there. And so, yeah, I mean, effectively they compromised the password of the probably a thousand hackers who use slackers.org to chat or whatever. I mean, hopefully they all used one time, you know, disposable passwords, but still uh, very, very dangerous to use uh, chat forums if you're a hacker. So that that uh, brings up, I think the tail end of that story ended up with a FOIA freedom of information. Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It finally, it finally came back. Uh, this has been multiple years, like uh, like close to five years, three, five years, something like that. It's been a long, long, long time. Um, so I FOIA'd myself just purely out of curiosity. I've heard other hackers doing this and some got some really inf good information out of it. So I'm like, cool, awesome. So I'll do it. So I submitted it to two of them. You can do it to all the government agencies, but I really only cared about the uh, FBI and CIA. I'm sure that other de departments have something interesting, but you know, those are the two big ones. Uh, so the CIA responded almost immediately and they're like, um, they gave me a Glomar, but one of the most interesting Glomars I've ever seen. It was like, uh, we don't have, we don't admit or deny that we have any data on you, blah, 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 blah. Typical Glomar statement. That's first paragraph. Second paragraph was, here are the four national security reasons specific to you, Robert Hansen, that we don't need to explain why we're not explaining what we have or don't have on you. It's like, why would you have to give me the exact reasons you don't have to do it if you didn't have it, right? So it's obviously kind of negates the glomar. And then the last paragraph is like, you can, of course, contest this, but I'm the guy who deals with the contesting and I'm just don't bother kid kind of thing, you know? <laughs> so... Uh, but the FBI was even more interesting. So they called me like almost immediately. And they're like, uh, hey, Robert Hansen, you know, blah, blah, I'm an agent, so-and-so, this woman. Uh, and she's like, I'm uh, just curious, you know, what are you trying to accomplish here? And I'm like, well, I'd like to know how you're hacking me. You know, like, <laughs> like I was pretty straightforward about it. Like, I'd like to know, like, if other government agencies are hacking me, I'd kind of like to know what you're using. You know, I have from Snowden and stuff, I kind of know, like, the, I would say the vast majority of the Dragnet stuff out there, but not specific. And and certainly anything targeted, I may not know about, right? There might be something very targeted I'm not aware of. So <clears throat> I told her the truth. Uh, and then I got another phone call <clears throat> about maybe maybe two weeks later or something from the local field office uh, here in Austin. And it was sort of one of those, well, so what's the deal here? You know, like, are you, what do you, what do you, like, we do have a file because obviously we worked on the case of Sabu, for instance, exactly, exactly that kind of stuff. So the FBI was involved in that. So they have files with, with my name all over it, you know, so I know we know each other basically. 
And so they're like, what's the deal? You know? And I'm like, well, I told him the truth. And he's like, oh, you think people are hacking? I'm like, dude, you're probably the guy who put that fucking carnivore box in my network. <laughs> you're probably the guy who did that. What are you talking about? Don't lie to me. And uh, I mean, if it wasn't you, it was one of your friends. You know what I mean? Like, and he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, mm -mm, you're not pulling that shit on me. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, so a couple of weeks go by and then I, they finally say that they've got all the stuff. So this is fast. This is all within like two, three weeks or something. They say they've got all the stuff. Now it's waiting to be reviewed. It sat in that state for years, just years. And granted, there's a lot of like big stuff going on in the world. So I wasn't super upset that they were behind and backlogged and stuff. And But like, I kind of like, I wonder if I sort of fit in this weird category because I've been on the internet a very, very long time, about as long as you can be on the internet and have it matter from the FBI's perspective, right? And so they, I have a feeling I've been in, involved in every dragnet thing that has ever occurred, like all the weird ones, you know, like, and, and even the ones that like have cross like country domains, so like five eyes, like, like Canada's a lot of spy on us, but the US can't, but so they, Canada does and they hand it back to the FBI kind of thing. Like I've been, I've every single dragnet technology that has ever existed on the planet, right? I would, I would assume at this point, it's been almost 30 years, you know? And, uh, and so it might be hard to find the right person who understands all of those things in context of a hacker. So that was my theory. And then I asked them like, how, like when, when am I gonna expect this? It's been years now. And they said, well, it'll be like, never. Uh, there's four different groups. There's small, medium, large, and extra large. Extra large, think of it like Watergate or something. Uh, small is under 25 pages or something, I forget. And then medium and large are somewhere in the middle, right? And they said, yours is a large. I'm like, okay, that's good to know. And so, um, and they said that I should expect it in about six months. It took about a year and then they finally gave it back. 100% redacted, 100%. Zero information anywhere through it other than my name. Uh, I, it's, I know it's me and there's a whole bunch of pages that are like kind of the boilerplate that they have to fill out, but all that's redacted too. So it's like, does this person have a spouse redacted? Like, why would you redact that? <laughs> like, that's not, it's not classified material, uh, but it's redacted. It's 100% redacted. So there's no information. I got literally no information from it whatsoever. Yeah, it's crazy. I think the last time we talked over the phone, I was thinking about filling out an FOIA. Um, but at that point, I was kind of secluded on a mountain in the middle of a southern state. And I thought, you know, if I do that, then obviously they're going to know where I'm at. They probably already know anyways, but... Putting myself on the radar is probably not a good idea. Um, but what I thought was interesting was when I found out I was on an OFAC list. So I went to go get a bank account and you know, the guy behind the counter, you know, he's, he's sitting there and I'm sitting across from him and we're just putting my name on an already existing account of somebody else. Right. And they're there with me. And so we're sitting there and he kind of gets a strange look and looks at his system and taps enter again. He's like, you know, I'll be right back. I got to get my manager. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So the manager comes over and he's looking over his shoulder. And he's like, wow, I've never seen that before. And uh, he goes, well, I can't put you on that account. Um, it looks like you're on an OFAC list. And I was like, hmm, OFAC, really? So uh, you think I've contributed to other terrorist organizations or I am a terrorist? Like, you know, it's weird that the stuff that happens once you get on that radar. And some of the stories that even I've heard from other people and from you and some of the stuff I've gone through literally sounds like it's something out of a movie 
and people rarely believe it. They're like, no way, no way. And I'm like, trust me, it's crazy shit. You know, and it makes you feel crazy when you're trying to explain to somebody, because the, the more you hear it and the more you, uh, you know, talk to somebody, it's like, that's really happening. Like this is shit you see in movies. So it, it, it's, it is a real thing. Oh, faculists mm-hmm. are a real thing. Um, and another buddy of mine, he has not that exact same list, but he's on a different one, like the no-fly list for the, the extreme rapey, you know, like quadruple check you, like, you know, he's got the quadruple S's every single time he flies, not like once in a while. Like, I don't even, anytime I'm traveling, I know he's traveling. I'm like, dude, I'll meet you at the gate. <laughs> like, I don't want to. Uh, it's crazy because you know, you're, you're on your own. <laughs> when, when I flew back from London, they had to call DHS to get me on the plane, even though I had paperwork from the embassy to come home on a four day passport, they still had to call DHS. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like I just got out of the hospital. I'm probably not strong enough to even like lift the, the seat tray, but you have to call DHS to let me back in the country. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and it go, just goes to show too the, I guess the insecurity of the government and really like, you know, the fear that they have. Um, I don't think they've really come to grips. It's also with- a gigantic mistake. It's not just yeah. that it's like, um, it's a mistake. You, you really, in if, in signals intelligence, you never want to relay that you know this information anyway. Like that, you should you should keep it to yourself. You know, like it's this is operational asymmetry. You have this information. Why would you make it extremely obvious that you're under investigation? Like it's it's just not smart. It's the kind of the same. I have the same opinion with people who block countries at their firewall. Like what oh are you God. doing? Like it's not like it's going to stop anyone in the country come from attacking. You. Just gonna find a proxy and now you've made it a thousand times harder to figure out where the bad guys are like it doesn't make any sense to me at all yeah it, that's funny that you bring that up too because you know at work i, I run a, a blue team i run a sock now and you know looking at some of the alerts and, and some of the recommendations from the devices that we use and it's blacklist ip i was like that makes no sense why why are we doing that in modern day 2021 blocking an IP address and communicating with a server. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, But it just goes to show it's that fear. And I think the reason why they let you know you're on those lists is control. You know, they make it very difficult for me to travel or or even have a bank account. And I don't think it's, you know, an accident that, you know, they tell me these things and bring it out into the open. I think it's a way of saying, hey, we're still here. And by the way, you know, we're still pissed. So, you know, it's that type of control. So given, you know, the, the, I guess, the temperament of cybersecurity now and, and looking at ransomware and, and some of the other attacks, what would you say is the next biggest threat when it comes to cybersecurity? Well, <clears throat> let, me, let me answer your question by answering a completely different question. Um, this, this is something I've been thinking a lot about. And I'm, I'm not 100% on this whole thing, so, but I'd like to soft throw it out there to the group and, and feel free to tell me I'm on crack, but let me just let me just tell you the idea. <clears throat> so one, once upon, I've been a vendor to a lot of different companies. I've probably personally sold at least a hundred enterprise deals. So I've dealt with small, medium, and really even very, very small little companies. And back like 10, 15 years ago, when you went in to sell to somebody and you know say, I've got X thing to sell you, You'd say, you know, you'd ask a question like, who here's heard of cross-site scripting? And they'd raise their hand or, you know, maybe one or two people had never heard of it. And, and even if they hadn't heard of it, they knew like everything around it, you know what I mean? So you could, 
you could quickly get them from not knowing anything to the thing you needed them to know back when I was doing pure web AppSec, for instance. <clears throat> now, it seems like we've had, every time I talk to people, I'll say things and I realize they don't even have the, they don't even have the base, base, base understanding of what anything, how anything works, let alone like sort of the next level to, to grasp onto a more complicated topic. Like I can't bring them along because they, they're still operating on things that we know to have not been true for at least 15, 20 years, right? Like this IP blocking thing. Like this is this has been a known thing for a very long time, but like and still you're still seeing it in your code or as recommendations or whatever. And it occurred to me, like, why is this happening? Why, why are we seeing a degradation, not, not a stabilization, but degradation in global capability uh, amongst people who are actually the, the practitioners? It's, it doesn't make sense. It, or to me, it doesn't make sense. And I think we figured out what's going on. <clears throat> so CISOs have a shitty job. They have to hire a lot of people to just basically fill, put bodies in seats, right? Um, and they have a certain amount of workload they need to accomplish. And so what are they going to do? Well, like all the really high-end people are all kind of consolidated in a handful of companies and they're very expensive and they're not going to be able to afford them. And they're not going to be able to attract them because they're a really boring little crappy company that no one wants to work for. Um, so where do they go? They go to local colleges maybe, or they recruit out of a different department or whatever. And they end up with people who have zero understanding of what's going on, or maybe just the very, very, very basics of what's going on. Not enough to actually be a practitioner, just like maybe they've heard the terms or something. So those people are now in charge of running tools. Um, they're now in charge of, the, they're, they're your sock for the most part, not your sock, but they're, they're the average sock or the average uh, analyst or the average person doing installations and configurations. So definitely should not have this job at all. <clears throat> then, um, so, so they also don't have an asset inventory, which is how, this is kind of where my brain got to this point. So, so the problem with that is like, how do you know that you're even working on the right thing? You don't, if you don't know every, the ecosystem of everything you have, how do you know to work on this? Is it just because the board yells at you about it? Or is it like something more substantial? Like, but the router sitting right next to it that you know nothing about is how T-Mobile got hacked, you know, or the dev server sitting right next to it is how Equifax got hacked. So just because you're working on the things that you think are important doesn't mean the thing right next to it that you don't know about isn't critical and that's how you're going to get popped. So the idea of a CISO buying um, an asset inventory is an incredibly good idea. And in fact, I think you're negligent if you don't do it. I, you know, a year or two ago, I could say, okay, it's best practice. Now I think you're negligent. If you, if you don't have it by now, you're probably doing something you probably don't know what you're doing and you probably should not have that job. But, <clears throat> but anyway, the problem is, let's say I do give it to a CISO and I'm like, okay, great. I found like 50 more things to go deal with. They're like, I don't want 50 more things to deal with. I want 50 less things to deal with. Like, how do I, how do I get less things, you know? So the problem is it, asset inventory basically announces a bunch more problems. And that's like before you even start scanning it. That's just like, hey, you got an old crappy whatever. I don't, I don't even need to do a comprehensive scan. I just tell you it's some outdated version of Apache or whatever. So I know you're not following your policies. I know you should go fix it. You know, you're, you compliance mandates as you're out of compliance, right? That's, that's an issue. So then you have the problem of, okay, so let's, let's go ahead and scan everything. Well, problem number one is that's very, very expensive. No one can, no one can afford that. <clears throat> so unless you're talking about like a really low end scan, like this is just a basic raw nothing scan that you can run yourself or something like very bare minimum type scan, you're, you're basically going to run into resource issues. 
Number two, they produce an enormous amount of output. So now that's back to the workload problem. So once upon a time, that may not have been that bad a problem. You have your really sophisticated engineers. They were like really, really on top of it. And the problem is they're worse now. They're actually worse. So you give them more workload and they're worse at dealing with that workload. That's like a double whammy. That's, that's really dangerous. Like now, what are they going to do? And prioritization's all messed up. So all these scanners produce red light, green lights, like red, green, yellow, green, or whatever. And you don't know, what does that mean? Like, is the, a green on the homepage the same as a yellow on a dev server? Or is it like, are they different? Are they better? Is it worse? Like there's no, and if you use something like Nessus or something, you might end up with exactly the wrong information. Everything's informational is remote root exploit. Everything that's critical is a false positive and not worth thinking about. It just depends, right? And so these scanners are a mess. <clears throat> and then, we talked uh, to one of the scanner companies and we asked them like, what happened if I gave you hundred thousand more assets to go scan from one company alone? Just there's hundred thousand assets. The answer did not, it was not encouraging. They're like, well, we could, we're currently doing like tens of thousands. So like this would be an order of magnitude more scan for one client, not, not all their clients, just one client. So scanning everything would just be a monumental exercise. I don't think they could do it. Not in, not short, in a short time period. They'd have to scale way the hell up and do a bunch of stuff differently. And then you'd end up with all this extra workload, like all this extra stuff. The CISO is just like, I don't want all this extra crap. So without the prioritization, you're just screwed. Then, okay, so you have all these vulns. You're not going to fix them. Uh, you don't have the right people to fix them anyway. And you don't want them. You don't want the issues. But if you did want to fix the most critical ones, how are you going to do it? So the only way I can think to do that is back to this stupid thing we've been talking about for like 15 plus years is the WAF. You used to throw a WAF in front of it. So problem number one, the WAFs can't handle all the workload. You try to put a WAF in front of the entire internet, forget it. There's, there's no WAF on earth. There's no company on earth that could route all the internet's traffic through a single set of machines. It's not gonna happen. Uh, so maybe you pick some subset at et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right, right. Um, but then you don't have the right people to manage the laugh. <laughs> Back to this resource problem, like these people definitely should not be writing like ACLs and stuff. Like they're nowhere near competent enough to do that. So you're left with some level of automation probably and a consolidation of extremely talented people all shoved into one company writing WAF rules all day or something. That's the only way that would ever work. And then... Then you have the problem of all the missed vulns and all the stuff that falls below that level of prioritization. So there are some vulns that don't make sense. And this, the easiest way I can, I can explain this is, do you guys walk around with an armored suit on all day? No. Uh, could something come and hurt you without an armored suit? Yes. Okay, so you've, you've accepted that there is a risk. You've also accepted that it's not a big enough risk. The ROI isn't there. Business has all the same kinds of issues, right? And so if... If you know that some issues aren't worth fixing, um, that's great. But then what? Like, are you just going to leave it there forever and just, uh, just I guess I'll just deal with this latent risk that's hanging out there? You've got to have some level of insurance. And the problem is, right now, the insurance industry, they're doing so well, they're out of insurance. You can't get it anymore. Uh, like, people are like, oh, should I get it? Good luck. Go ahead and try. <laughs> uh, the I think it's Lloyd's has like the biggest book of insurance out there in the world, cyber insurance, and they they sold it all. They have none left. There's no more cyber insurance that can be bought by anybody from Lloyd's. So good luck finding it next year. Yeah, sure, I'm sure they'll increase it. There'll be more hanging out there, but they're very worried because 
you can have black swan events where like everyone gets popped all the, all the same time, you know, on Apache struts where all this, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of risk are just hanging out there. So they're very concerned. In fact, there's a lot of rumors that they've been losing money on cyber, which means they need to improve their premiums. Uh, and so that industry is still kind of trying to figure itself out and they don't have any idea what the relative risk of anything is yet. They're still trying to figure that out. They have no idea what prioritization is. They have no idea what anyone owns um, because the companies don't know that either. So I think it's an amalgam of all of that problem is what the biggest threat we have is. Because if you could fix the incentives that the CISO has, I think a lot of those things would start getting knocked down by virtue of just pure capitalism. Like people are like, oh, you want to buy 100,000 more licenses to our scanner? Great. Like I'll go knock something out and make it work or whatever. But without without the incentives all making sense and all the technology kind of being in place to support it, a lot of automation, a lot of really intelligent automation, I just don't see it happening. Uh, I really don't. Yeah, I've got cool. a similar question to you as well to this one. I found this presentation by Psych Theory, and I think oh, you're, the one, you're, you're, the one that, you're the one that presented it as well. And it's actually called... Uh -oh. Top 10 least likely and most dangerous people, I believe, on the internet. That's the end of the presentation. So, mm -hmm. and that's something similar. What, do you think the lists have changed? Because uh, I will oh, post in the group chat. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. This it's is like, very that's, interesting a, that's a great list, uh, one for the Because I the think the list likely part was actually very interesting part because I didn't expect to see some names on the list. Um, yeah. If you can mention some here that will come up to you, maybe top three, you know, and maybe explain to us how you perceive it. Because this is very different to what you usually see if you Google like top 10 most dangerous people. You expect some of the names, for example, that we mentioned today during the chat, you know, or some common news article type of names, you know, but the list you have here is completely different. And that was actually impressed me that I, I would never think about that. Yeah, it was, it was all like i'll give you i think the actual title of the presentation in memory serves is something like top 10 list of most dangerous people you've probably never heard of uh, or something something along those lines or least least known or something like that um like for instance um i think maybe i put it in there i'm not 100 sure but the people who own com.com that is an incredibly dangerous thing that exists and we all just seem to be totally okay with so the reason I know this is actually dangerous and not theoretically dangerous, um, once upon a time, a buddy of mine bought csuchico.com instead of csuchico.edu. And the amount of email he got was astronomical. Like he had to dedicate an entire machine just to deal with all the inbound typos coming in just from that one typo squat. Um, and he was nice about it. He would tell people, hey, you got the wrong address and stuff and try to help them out. But like, imagine if you weren't nice, right? And so com.com exists and people type things wrong. They type google.com.com fairly frequently. Like people don't realize it, but they're just typing too quick or cut and paste wrong or whatever, that kind of thing. And the problem with that is once upon a time, a com.com um, domain wasn't that big a deal because there was nothing on it. There was no website. There was, no, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. There was no ports open. It was just, just sitting there. Someone bought it. Someone bought it. I don't know who bought it. Someone bought it. Uh, and now 2425 is open. Uh, and now the website's open. And so now they're getting referring URLs. Now they're getting email, like all the stuff. And God knows what's flowing through that system. Um, and so whoever runs that, uh, that's a hell of a hack. Sure, it was expensive, but you probably more than made your money back. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. 
I don't know who's good. Uh, who's got some good stuff out there um, that I worry about? What about the 14 year old who uh, did hack the Pentagon just recently and, and won the uh, challenge? Um, I'm not sure if I know that kid, but there's another kid I know who's a little older. I think he's 17 mm-hmm. that they ended up hiring because he was so good. Nice. Um, yeah, there's like there's- that. that- that guy's crazy good. There's actually quite a few kids that, so I, I deal with the London police quite often with, you know, kids who have been busted for hacking or whatever. And uh, just recently had a discussion about one of them that performed a pretty big hack in, in Europe um, and talked to his parole officer. And, and it looks like uh, I'm going to be helping out with them. Um, but yeah, the, the kids are getting younger and smarter for sure. Okay. I got my, I got my number two. So what people don't realize about VPNs uh, is that the bulk of them are owned by the Chinese military, like most of them. Um, And the free ones are actually even more interesting. And if you really do your homework into the free ones, uh, those, those are some, those are some interesting things because they effectively are just proxies. That's just think about it like a proxy. You're just installing a proxy in your local machine. You're basically letting anyone use your local machine when you download this thing. And people don't realize that. So people inside companies are downloading these little VPNs because they want to look at porn at work or whatever they're going to do. Who the hell knows what they're up to? Uh, and now they're behind the firewall. And because they're behind the firewall, this isn't even malware. This is just a proxy. And it works as expected, right? So if you know the owners of these things, you can contact them and you say, hey, I want to have access behind this set of IPs. And if you ever get it, let me know and I'll buy it for some much larger money than it would be worth for me to get any random one or just scan through all of them until you find ones that you're interesting like get a list of ips that are interesting and suddenly now you're behind the firewall as a web user right so and now you're talking about the the space of any web volume you could possibly find in a corporate network which is a lot i'll tell you that much right now <laughs> no one's scanning the internal network they're not scanning the external network either but they're definitely not scanning the internal network absolutely so, so i'll tell you what's interesting too is like going back to the whole you know know your assets and, and asset inventory and stuff like that um we start uh, talking about um your, you know, the new tool that you guys had, the new platform, as far as, you know, looking at uh, vulnerabilities, right? External vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. The company I was in was actually depending their uh, raises and uh, bonuses for executives off of BitSight score. What I found interesting about BitSight was the fact that when I looked at the report from BitSight, there were a number of domains that were not ours. And I, (laughs) <laughs> getting vulnerabilities off of that list, it takes overnight in order to get the vulnerabilities on the list, but you have to wait like 60 days for it to come off of the list. And so in the interim, Interesting. I yeah, heard that. yeah, in the interim, the executives are going up for their bonuses and wondering why their bonuses are so small. And, you know, when I go to the CISO and say, hey, look, you have 500 eternal blue vulnerabilities on your internal network. What are we going to do about it? And he says, I'm not worried about it. It's on the internal network. You know, it's protected by a firewall. And I, it just blew my mind. And that, at that point, I was like, okay, oil and gas is, is much further behind than what I thought it was. Um, and, you know, looking at some of the, uh, you know, supply chain attacks and stuff like that, places like industrial, places like, you know, oil and gas, medical, that supply chain threat, I think, is huge with those particular industries specifically because IT is secondary to their operations. 
um, especially with medical. You know, we started seeing medical uh, exploitation and leaks back during, uh, right after I got in the military, um, when the VA got hacked. Uh, and it's, it's constant. So I think, you know, along with what you're saying, I think asset management, be able to know your assets is one. But in order to do something about it and not be pressured to feel like you have to do something about it, just knowing the fact that that's something that should be addressed, I think is, is a big weakness along a lot of industries. Because as long as they get an external score of 80, they don't care what the inside looks what like. What does that even mean, though? I like, know, right? What, what is that? That's that's actually one of the biggest pet peeves I have is Absolutely. is prioritization in general. Like you get an A, you get an 80, you get a green light, you get a whatever, like you get a progress bar. What does that mean? Exactly. What, what, it's useless information from a practitioner's perspective, except for prioritization of potential garbage data, because clearly you haven't come up with a way to actually score it with real information. So if you, in case anyone's curious, here's how you actually do it. If you really wanted to do it, uh, I'll tell you how to do it. So first you need to know what the asset's worth. Now that, that is complicated. I'm not gonna say that that's easy, but let's say you know the asset's worth a million dollars or something, or say it's 10 million, just so we can have easy numbers. Or actually say it's 20 million, super easy numbers. So you'd say there's a vulnerability out there that can extract, let's say 50% of the value of an asset, right? Like if the bad thing happens, it's not like the asset goes away. It's not like we can't continue to use it. It's just that people are going to trust it 50% less or something or whatever. After it's all said and done, it's going to cost, you know, $10 million. Okay, so now uh, you have $10 million worth of risk sitting out there. Well, what's the percentage likelihood of that happening? Well, that might only be 50% again, right? So now it's $5 million worth of risk over, let's say, a 24-month period or 12-month period or something. Um, okay, so you have a, an approximately $5 million risk hanging out there. Well, how much is it going to cost to fix? Well, it'll cost, let's say, $500,000 to fix. All right, so you're saying, if I give you $500,000, Blue Team, you can save me $5 million worth of risk. What is the ROI? It's $5 million divided by 500000 uh, that is a very strong ROI. Now, if the numbers were inverted and I said, well, it's going to cost me $5 million to fix this $500,000 the risk. I'm like, what are you talking? Why would I ever do that? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. Like that's a very negative ROI or very, you know, 0.000 whatever percent ROI. So as long as the ratio is above one, you know, it's a positive ROI and you should go do it. And the higher it is, the, the larger the ROI is on the thing. And then you can just stack rank them and say, okay, that's the order in which you should fix things because that is the highest ROI for the amount of money that I put in. And then you can aggregate it. You can say, look, Mr. CFO, I would like, you know, two or $3 million worth of actual cash to fix the $50 million worth of liability we have hanging out there. And they're going to say, okay, kid, I don't believe you. Let me show your math. You know, let me see your math. You're like, okay, here's the math. Show the math. And like, yeah, you were all wrong. Like, you don't know how it, this is more fully loaded and they'll switch the, move the dials around a little bit. And then they'll go, okay, it's really $3 million, not $2 million. Like, fine, can I have $3 million to fix a $50 million worth of risk? Like, fine. And you never had to use the word SQL injection or command injection or, you know, remote file includes or any of this weird, you know, computery technology that CFOs have no idea about. You can just say money, I need money to fix money. Like I need more. And then you can have a direct ROA to the business. You're like, look, look, we just saved $47 million this quarter or whatever. And they're like, holy shit, that's a real thing. You did a real thing. Instead of thinking about security as a cost center, you start thinking about it as a truly removal of liability. And liability, if you're gonna get your company acquired, for instance, is super duper useful because it's a multiple. 
So let's say you're a small-ish company and you're like, okay, I want to sell my company for $10 million. All right, great. Well, how much liability do you hang out, have out there? We have $1 million worth of liability. Okay, well, and what's your valuation? It's uh, multiple is like 10 times or something. So we want to sell for $100 million. Okay, I would like $10 million discount because you have a, a million dollar liability hanging out there, which is multiplied by 10. And now your company is only worth $90 million. Like that is real money. That is really money. Now, I don't think M&A teams are, have fully figured this out yet. Thank God, because we have time, but we don't have much time. They're going to figure this out. So if you keep things in dollars and cents, you can have a real risk program that actually is based on actual real dollars and cents risk. And you can get uh, your CFO and business unit on like on page with what you're actually trying to do. I, red light, green light is not a good strategy. I don't know why so many tools have still clung still to this. Using it. It, you know, what's funny is it failed with the military as well. So DHS, the, the terrorist threat level, you know, red, yellow, yeah. green, it was all bullshit anyways. <laughs> I mean, that, that whole, that whole idea fails every time. So Kim had an interesting question. She sent me, she says, what are your thoughts on whether or not cyber insurance is actually causing ransomware increasing due to these policies? So I was involved in a ransomware incident, not, not long ago on the IR side of it. And they had their cyber insurance come in. We couldn't do anything until they consulted with cyber insurance. Cyber insurance came in, said, let's talk to the attackers and let's negotiate. That, that's always the first thing I hear from, from insurance companies. Not, you know, hey, how can we dig out without having to pay this ransom? It's always, how much are they asking for? And let's start negotiations. So come to find out, you know, we were able to go into a specific type of technology, release those images, roll back the date to where they were clean images and be able to deploy them and pretty mm -hmm. much save them a lot of money. But even the, the, the secondary IR company that came in and took over, they were so focused on the threat actor and, you know, oh, we've had communication. We, we've, we've made contact with the threat actor and they're asking for this amount of Bitcoin, right? And then, you know, the company, of course, is like, well, it's kind of high, you know, let's focus on getting back operational. So then they would come back. And this is an IR team. This is a, a team that, you know, specifically specializes in IR. And mm -hmm. they come back and they say, okay, well, the, the threat actor contact us again. They've decreased the amount that they're going to pay or that, that they're requesting. But we want to tell you that the only time threat actors do that is when there's a possibility that they'll come back and attack again. So they're, they're all concerned about how are we going to utilize your cyber insurance instead of, hey, how'd they get in? Let's go ahead and roll back the clock until the threat actors go fuck themselves. So that's a very interesting anecdote. Um, I, um, in fact, we, we know enough insurance um, brokers. I could probably find out the actual answer to that question, but I don't have it off the top of my head. My, I suspect what's happening is an amalgam of two completely different things. Number one is the insurance industry is pretty new. Cyber insurance industry is pretty new. And they're probably, they're probably, well, it's an amalgam of three things. They're new, so they don't know what they're doing. Part one. Part two is they need to have a certain amount of payouts because they need to understand that there is a market and what the market actually is. And if you, if you don't have payouts and people don't have, if people can't advertise, I, my bacon was saved by virtue of insurance it's very hard to get other people to buy. So they need, they need claims. So I can see why the insurance company would just, just jump on it, go for it. Like go ahead and pay it because they need a certain amount of claims going through the system. And number three is if the IR team 
is correct that let's say you don't do a particularly good job of coming and coming up with a clean image. Like let's say you think it's clean, but they actually, they backdoor the clean image or they have something sitting off the side that's sort of a sleeper you know, process or something that can go and attack you once you, know, once you reinstall or something. There is a potential risk of that payout going much higher by virtue of a bad faith exercise or something. So maybe there's some anecdotes that I just don't, I'm not aware of because a lot of this stuff's gonna be hidden behind NDAs where um, that it was advantageous to be forthright and just pay. Uh, I, I just don't know the answer. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, the ransomware is increasing. And I think it's mostly because of the fact that more companies are paying, more cyber insurance companies are paying. And the interesting part that of that whole incident was the fact that I saw the trickle down from the insurance agency to the other IR company. Like they were on page with, what the cyber insurance was saying. And it was like, wait a minute. Okay. Cut yourself out of the money, cut yourself out of the theory. And let's look at the technological side, right? The technology we can roll back. It's there. So why, why is that mindset going towards cyber insurance? And the only thing I can think of is the fact that the other IR teams are probably funded by some of these cyber insurance companies. Totally. Totally. And, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not even in that business. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was brought in to do a pen test, um, just through a friend of mine. He's like, Hey, will you please come in and help us out with this pen test? Uh, cause they were short staffed and, um, and they were a hundred percent paid by an insurance policy because of a compromise. And they, they wanted a good team to come in and do a sort of an external check to make sure things were good after they fixed everything. So it definitely happens. Uh, I've definitely been paid by insurance, you know, secondhand, but still. Another interesting part of that too was the fact that the attackers used commercial encryption tools and downloaded the the EXEs for these tools to those desktops and used that to encrypt the systems. And I thought, wow, you don't have enough faith in your own skills. You got to go download, you know, another tool which I mean is readily available and, you know, the way to reverse it's available as well. So it was like, it was kind of amateurish, you know, but yeah. it did have an effect. It had an immediate effect on that company and brought all their systems down for a period of time. They went after the most critical assets and I saw the, the brain work behind that, but the way that they use the encryption and, you know, even some of the communication was really, really amateurish. Um, so, but one, one quick point about that, cause this is, this from an evolutionary perspective is actually kind of interesting. What if there's an evolutionary advantage to being kind of crappy at this? Because if you're so good, it's like a parasite killing the host. If you're always perfect, you're going to end up in a situation where people cannot recover. And occasionally, you're not going to be able to handle the payouts or whatever. You're going to have to abandon ship or whatever. And if you, if you do that too many times, people will just realize, oh, you shouldn't pay out. Like there's no, these guys are full of shit. They're never going to give you your money back. They're never going to give you your key back. But if you leave some amount of ways to get back this information, it's just so convoluted and hard and annoying. At least you don't kill the host and there's still the war story of, well, you know, like we were able to recover at least, you know, we were, we were unfortunate, but you know, we're still in business. There's not that horror story. Yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting. With this, 
problem with this evolution is, is is what exactly I mentioned like a week ago in our Discord chart, chat is that my mate's Instagram page, his company's Instagram page, he had like enough followers, you know, to just use it to advertise. It's been hacked. And when it comes to social media hacking, usually no, they usually just, you know, just put something stupid on the status, you know, or just change your password. But what happened this time is that they actually now start demand a ransom. So they put, put on his status to say, this is the link, contact us. So he went on it and they said, oh, we just won like 200 pounds. Let's say it's like $100, you know. And I know it's not a small amount and it's not like a million followers there that he cares about. But this is where we got into when it comes to ransomware, right? Because usually you expect only big companies to get ransomed because it's just worth it for them when it's a lot of millions of money. But small thing like that, now all those kids that sit behind or script kiddies, you know, what we call them, which probably that guy is, you know, whoever is behind sure. them, is that they now start understanding, okay, so now... I see on the news a lot of this, uh, everybody's getting millions. So let me now use exactly the same thing what I've been doing for the past five years for fun. Now let me start claiming the money. And this is a scary actually evolution, which I kind of now start raising a lot of attention where now we're going from big ransoms to quite small ones. And maybe this is one time situation, but it can happen many times, you know? I think it's arbitrary as well, like completely arbitrary. So some of these attackers don't really know what they're attacking until after the fact. Totally. And then that's totally. when they start raising the ransom. So there's well, an interesting. I mean, right? I mean that that you know that's true because go down to any IT team at any Fortune 500 and ask them how many of those computers have a virus on them. Basically, every friggin' one of them. Whenever people say, "Oh, so and so got hacked," I'm like, every one of those companies hacked. Go go talk to their IT team. What do you think they're doing all day down there? This computer's running slow. Why do you think it's running slow? Give me, I'll give you one guess what's running on that other than your typical Microsoft Office or whatever. And if that's the case, that means that the vast, 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 vast majority of botnets are just not monetizing properly. Yeah. And that is terrible. That's scary. Yeah. So the, going back to that, that same thing you were talking about, Alex, um, my stepson, uh, he's in his 20s now, but when he was in high school, he had a cell phone and he, being kind of curious as he was, you know, he's a teenage kid start looking at porno sites, right? And I found it, my other son came to me and said, hey, dad, you know, I, I think Jet's doing something bad and, and his phone is, is locked up. And so I said, I told my, my son, Hunter, I said, well, why don't you take a look and tell me what his screen says when he pops it up? So he came back to me and said, dad, the FBI is in his phone. So I immediately, I knew, I knew which type of malware ransomware it was and, and so I, I went days and, and let him kind of flounder and, and sweat it out, you know, and he said, uh, I said, Jet, where's your phone? Oh, it doesn't work. I said, well, go get, go get it. You know, let me take a look at it. So he brings <laughs> <No>. it to me. <laughs> so he, he, he brings it to me. And of course the FBI, you know, bullshit screen, you know, Hey, you owe me this amount of money in Bitcoin since his PayPal address or whatever. Um, and I looked at it and I said, Jet, you know, the FBI is really after you, you know, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> You know, you've been doing something really bad. And he totally broke down. He was so upset. And so I said, you know, th let this be a lesson. You know, th this is not real. You know, this is not from the FBI like you think it is. It's, it's ransomware. I can take care of this. Not a big deal. Reset his phone. Went back in time. Reset everything. Everything was fine. But kids are starting to experience it on gaming, online gaming. Um, their laptops, their phones, everything. Because, you know, just like most people who aren't like tech savvy, they'll click on anything 
And it seems like back in the day, most of that was click on a link, you get shell code, you know, and you pop the shell somewhere. But now it's transverse from popping shells to getting ransomed. You know, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, you know, just like the, the pipeline hack, those guys had no idea what they had compromised. No clue. Yeah, I don't think so. No, yeah. no clue. And when they did realize it, all of a sudden the bounty went up. They're like, oh shit, you know, we've got critical infrastructure now. Um, so I think, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. But I think you're right, Robert, about, you know, being perfect all the time. Because I think that if you show expertise in the way that you conduct ransomware, not only does it make you know, it, it harder to get that payout, but it also puts you on the radar, a very tight radar. Um, but again, you know, I think some of the governments around the world are, are responsible for a lot of ransomware. Um, just my I opinion. I would suspect so. Yeah. No, I think, I think, I mean, not, this isn't ransomware specifically, but when uh, the, the biggest fraud that I've ever heard of to date um, is something called surf fraud. Uh, and it's basically, you go and you figure out someone's information and you file their taxes on their behalf and you get it sent to somewhere, right? So the refund, like maybe 5,000, 10,000 bucks or whatever on average. And that just basically flows to some country that's not you basically. And the estimate is it is about a $4 billion a year fraud billion dollar a year fraud. And from the estimates I've heard from the people who work on this, they think it's about a hundred people total doing it. So find me a hundred people that can launder a billion, four billion dollars every single year. It's just, it's gotta be a nation state, hundred percent. There's it just was, no way I, I, like, I remember this one time, this is a brief story. I remember the one time I popped something and this isn't like a little trivial thing. This is like, the worst thing you could possibly think of from a monetary perspective. I had access to effectively all the money that transacts across all these banks and banking systems. And I, I'm just sitting there and the sum total of all the money that's being moved around, I don't even want to use the number because people will think I'm lying, but it was a, an enormous number, right? And so I talked to a buddy of mine, a straight up black hat, and I'm like, like, okay, what's the deal? Like if I wanted to launder this enormous, enormous, enormous amount of money, um, what, what would it take? And he's like, and he just started laughing at me. He's like, there's just no way, like not, there is no way. Like if you wanted to wander like 1 million to maybe five, 10 million, like I could make it happen. I'm like, well, what if I wanted to do that, you know, thousands of times? He's like, no, no, sorry. There is no, there's no infrastructure that could handle that. There's no, I couldn't put enough people in jail as, you know, as sort of like the, you know, it was their fault and then they get paid out on when they come out of jail or there's no way you could find enough people to do this uh, it's not not possible if that's not possible then for him and he's this is what he does for a living so it's not like he's uh, you know an idiot about it um i just don't see a way that huge chunks of these things are nation states sponsored yeah i mean you look at the sanctions that we put on like let's say north korea or china right and what do they do once they get those sanctions they go after cryptocurrency and they start mm -hmm. stealing wallets and they start stealing Bitcoin. Um, so, I mean, when you look at actions like that, it's pretty plain to see, you know, who's responsible for the majority of ransomware. Um, but what's really interesting, and this was coming from a seasoned IR team, and it really shocked me that they even said this, but at five o'clock, these guys cut camp and, and went home. And I was like, what the hell is, you know, we, we're nowhere near getting these systems back up again. And their response was, well, these guys only work eight to five. 
you know, so there's no sense in us like trying to communicate because they're already off work. And I thought, what, wait a minute, if you know them that well, you know their hours of operation, you know how to negotiate with them, what kind of connection do you have with them? And what kind of connection do they have with the client? Because if they know the inner operations that well, that throws up a red flag to me. You know, and so I, I definitely think that governments are involved, but I also think, and, and this is probably the tenfold hat thinking, but I also think that maybe some of the fly-by-night cybersecurity insurance companies may also be involved, um, you know, helping finance some of those groups and taking maybe. some of those funds and, and laundering them. Um, you know, and, and, and right. nothing that was really interesting too, and tell me your take on this, was when the FBI came out and said that they had recovered X amount of dollars from the group that compromised the pipeline. I thought that was kind of weird. You know, the verbiage that they used was really strange. And the fact that they recovered cryptocurrency. So I personally, I think it's a lot of bullshit, but you know, I, I don't know exactly what transpired behind closed doors, but what's your take so, on, on that whole thing? So to me, this doesn't sound like bullshit. To me, it sounds like a, a boring day in the office because I, I suspect what happened and I don't know, I wasn't there, but I suspect what happened is um, some idiots wrote some code and it compromised the pipeline. They had no idea what they had. These are not state-sponsored hackers. These are just like some idiots who are just running in a little scam and suddenly accidentally happen across the biggest payout that they could ever want. Right. And they weren't particularly well situated to extract the money. They didn't really know what they're doing. They had a wallet and they had the one wallet and it's sitting there and it's on an exchange that the FBI is actively monitoring. And when, the, when as soon as the key was transmitted, the FBI was right there with a subpoena saying, nope, they can't extract that money. Like you're giving it back to us. And the exchange did exactly what the FBI asked or get shut down. See, what, what I mean by like conspiracy theory is that, so when you look at like BitTorrent and Tor, right? When that first became popular and that used to be the means of transactions on the, on the dark web, what was the first thing the FBI did was create exit nodes so they could see some of that traffic. Um, my thought is that the FBI or maybe even the treasury is inside of cryptocurrencies looking at transactions and watching transactions. Oh, of course they are. Yeah, and, and, so, and, and a ton of other researchers are too. Uh, yeah. It's not just them. In fact, in fact, there's been a bunch of presentations about it, like yeah. ways to figure out how money laundering works and you know, stuff yeah. like that. So. It, it just makes me think that the FBI has a little bit more insight into identities and transactions than what we think on cryptocurrency. Well, I would I would expect them to because yeah. cryptocurrency isn't anonymous. It's the no. opposite of anonymous. It's totally designed to be open, so anyone can take a look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, so if the FBI is not looking at it, they're they're stupid, right? <laughs> just yeah. all you have to do is it's right there. You just look at it. You know, and they broadcast uh, like the, Monero and Ethereum as being like the more secure cryptocurrencies, but I'm I'm not even sure what that means because to me they're all kind of the same. But when it comes to mining and actually like transactions, everybody goes from Monero. And you know, I've haven't quite pinned that down as to why, but everybody thinks that's a more secure way of transacting with uh, crypto. It could be, I mean, I haven't dug enough into the internals of all the different versions to know exactly which one I would choose. But my, my feeling is Bitcoin is sort of like a bank account. If you're if you're going to use it, treat it like a bank account where you have to keep your credentials secure because some bad actor will go empty it out, and that's it. 
uh, and, and expect them to be able to know how much money you have in the bank account. So if you have a big bank account, you're much more likely to get attacked. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much how it works. Yeah, I, I remember waking up one morning and I had a Navy federal account and the government had seized my account. And I thought, well, that's kind of fucked up. You know, that's my money, you know, and to get back at me for things I had done, they seized my account and took my money. Um, and I've lost that, that ability to, to use that institution again. So, you know, talking about technology, talking about hacking and, and cybersecurity and interesting stories, tell me about what Robert's doing now outside of cybersecurity. I mean, what, what do you do for outside. fun now? Yeah, what do you do for fun now? Oh, uh, I'm pretty busy these days. I uh, hang out with my girlfriend and go drink at the local bars and I go shooting and uh, there's a local range, Not nothing, no animals, just paper, you know, holes in paper. Uh, and um, yeah, not a ton more. I like, um, I got involved with a Formula Four team. So I'm kind of helping them out a little bit and I do some investing. So I help out little companies that are just getting off the ground, like small, small, small stuff. Um, so I guess I advise a lot of people. So I kind of help them out. People call me up when they have problems, like business-related problems, not, not technology specifically. And uh, yeah, just kind of a lot of stuff. I, I'm actually extremely busy. I don't, there's really not a day that I'm not doing like 20 different things. So, um, exactly. but it's never really the same thing. It's, it's always kind of random. What about AHA? Is AHA still around? It's a good question. I haven't been to AHA in a long time. Uh, yeah. AHA scares the crap out of me. Like as a presenter, I just, oh man, it's, it's terrifying. Have you ever actually spoken there? I haven't spoken there, but I've known quite a few people who Oof. have, who were, who were there from the beginning, like you and Let's, HD Moore and. Okay. So I've only spoken there maybe three times or something, mm -hmm. but I think the last time I spoke there, um, keep in mind, it's a small thing is that they made it like a pizza place. It's like a little tiny room. And there's like 20 people in there maybe. And, uh, and, and they're all like right on top of you. You're like, you're like, you're right there. And which is actually the most awkward way to present. Like when you're presenting, you kind of want people off like maybe five, 10 feet or something, but you're like standing like right on top of people. And then uh, you're not mic'd, which is really bad from a presenter perspective because you don't, you're not any louder than anyone else. So every, anyone talks, they're like talking at your same volume. It's really scary because like anyone says anything and everyone looks at them and now it's, it's very terrifying. But anyway, and then you have all these like really, really good hackers in there, like actually good hackers, you know, like HD Moore is just one of them. There's a bunch of them in there. They're all very good. And so I did a presentation about like some, something I could do in JavaScript space, like decloaking in JavaScript space or something. And uh, I, what I didn't know is that HD Moore had built decloak.net. And so he, he just straight out and says, and by the way, H.D. Moore is a very nice human being, by the way. If you don't know him, he's really, really nice. But like, he just like with deadpan, like I invented this, blah, blah, blah. And he starts telling me how it works. And like, I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> like, I had no idea. I, I know nothing about it, but he was saying enough things that I was picking up what he was saying. And I'm like, like, oh, 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 but that's in Java though. So this is JavaScript, which, you know, has different implications, blah, blah. It's looking at me like narrow eyes, like, should I kill you? You know, one of those It's like, okay, okay. Like I'll allow it kind of thing. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> like, I, was just, I was just fucking around just having a nice little presentation. There's only like five minutes presentations, like super fast, like in and out, tell them what you're, what's interesting, leave. And I'm like, oh my God, what? Yeah, that, I can't do I, that. My heart, my. <laughs> the, those little groups are, are always the hardest. So I, I did one in London, the DEFCON DEFCON group in London, 
and same same situation it was in the bottom of a pub in like the basement and there was probably a hundred people in there but they're literally i mean it was a small small room and the microphone barely worked and the presentation and there were people in there that were you know design telecom units you know like smart smart individuals and i was so worried i was like you know what if my presentation falls flat on its face because it, it wasn't technical it was about my story and what brought me to london and so halfway through it, you know, I'm, I'm looking at face, you know, I kind of gauge the crowd and, and try to see, you know, how, how many people are connected. And I was really surprised that people were actually listening, but I did get a few people who came back afterwards and left comments, you know, on different websites, you know, it wasn't a technical talk. And I was like, well, of course it wasn't. It was about my journey. You know, I'm not telling you how to break boxes. I'm telling you how to avert, you know, being picked up at the airport. You know, mm -hmm. um, but those, those small venues always scare the shit out of me. I think the, the, the one that I was the most nervous about, but it wasn't a small venue, was probably the Arab Security Conference. And it was in Egypt, but I wasn't physically there. They took me out on a laptop and stuck me on a podium. And I could see the audience through the camera and they could see me on the screen, but it was so nerve wracking. And I think we talked before I started doing public speaking and uh, I was totally like nervous. I got kind of thrown into it and was like, oh shit, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and I think it was you who said, you know, when you stop getting nervous, that's when you need to stop talking. And so, you know, I, I, I cling on to stuff like that, like, uh, you and Tom Ryan and some other guys that, that we kind of grew up in a scene together, you know, I rely on you guys for, as being a mentor. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, we all run into those scary situations when it comes to public speaking. And, uh, you know, I try to tell people that I work with, you know, some of the kids coming into cybersecurity start a project, you know, start some research, publish some white papers, you know, make yourself pertinent, right? Make, make yourself relevant and then take some, some uh, speaking engagements because that being able to communicate the thought process to a group of people, I think is the most beneficial in anybody's career. I, I think it helped me get outside of my shell and kind of forget some of the shit in the past and move on. Um, and it's, I think it's therapeutic as well. But mm -hmm. like at Black Hat, watching you at Black Hat and watching you wa uh, work the crowd at Black Hat is impressive. I've always been totally intimidated by speaking at Black Hat. DEF CON, no big deal. Black Hat, different story. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not for everybody. Yeah. I would say, I would say if, if I were getting people like coming up advice, like, you know, just starting off their career, just, you know, know a little bit, but not enough to be dangerous yet. I'd say number one is build a website. And I don't mean like a GeoCities website where someone did all the work and you're just typing stuff in. I mean, literally get a box. You can, you know, EC2 instance, they're free now. You can just get one. That's very um, <clears throat> Get one, install Apache Nginx or something and install your favorite programming language, learn the programming language, and then build a flow, build something, build like a login page, a registration page, a sign-in page, uh, sorry, um, uh, like a forgot password flow, like a search function, and then like one or two other things, right? Build a website, like but all the components of a website, all the graphics, all the text, all the forms, all the stuff, right? Database behind it all. And then tell all your hacker friends that it's secure and see what happens. Uh, and like, just go ahead and hack it and go, go for it. You will learn more in that handful of days and weeks than you probably could in any amount of schooling because an actual hacker who's going after that stuff is going to find all kinds of weird stuff that you just couldn't have possibly thought of without, you know, being experienced in it and actually doing it. 
And then, yeah, I think you should go and do present about it. like, okay, so here's what happened. Um, I, I threw down the gauntlet. I told my hacker friends that this was unhackable, you know, just to see what happens, learn stuff. And here's how they hacked it. And by virtue of telling people, verbalizing the words that the things you actually learn a lot, just about how to phrase things, how to make a story, how to interact with the crowd. And it, it will teach you more about how to sell yourself and how to sell your ideas than just about any other way. If your ideas suck, but you can sell them, like you'll, they'll, you'll get good ideas, you'll get bad ideas out there in the world. If you have great ideas and you can sell them, they'll be out in the world. But if you have good or bad ideas and you can't sell them, you don't matter. Uh, you just, it just doesn't matter. Um, so you gotta, you gotta practice, you gotta focus on, you know, getting out there and talking to people. Yeah. And, it, and you can do it small. You could like aha is kind of an extreme example, actually. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't start someone there. Uh, but if, you know, just your friends, just go and take them for a drink and say, guys, I just want to do a, a presentation. And I still do this today. I actually come up with something pretty freaking nasty. Uh, and I just wasn't sure there's, there's a lot of moving parts to this thing. And so I grabbed a friend of mine. I'm like, dude, I just needed another set of eyeballs on this. Am I crazy? And he's like, after the whole thing, he's like, I just hope you're wrong. Uh, it's, it's really bad. I just hope you're wrong. I, I, you know, I don't know if you're right or wrong, but I just hope you are. And that's great feedback. I'm like, okay, well, I better quadruple check my work, you know? And so, um, it's a, that's a way to kind of get over those jitters, but what I wouldn't recommend, and a lot of people do this, I wouldn't recommend memorizing your speech. A lot of people try to do that. It still boggles my mind or they'll try to read off something, you know, right. like, I don't mean like a PowerPoint slide. I mean, literally all the text. And the problem with that is you sound very rehearsed and no one will believe you. They right. just, they just, they just tune you out. You know, they don't want to hear it. Like if you want to do that, just send them the freaking paper or whatever. Don't, don't, don't read it to them. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that I found shocking was I would give the same talk in multiple cities and I would see people from the previous city going to the city I'm in to watch the talk again. And I asked him, I said, you know, why do you come to the same series of talks multiple times? And they said, because every time it's something different. And I think that's, I think that's what makes a good speaker is the fact that you can, you know, your story, you, you know what you're trying to communicate, but every once in a while I'll have a new thought pop in or I'll remember a certain incident. And I throw that in there. Um, and I try to get kids to, to think about it as a story, you know, and I think that's really important to be able to get those kids to communicate when they get into cybersecurity at the very beginning. Um, because in that way they can communicate with board members, they can communicate with C levels, um, mm -hmm. especially pen testers, you know, getting them to mm -hmm. communicate with the results to a board or to a CISO the first or, time they do just, it. To, or just to some client, right? Yeah. You're sitting on the other side of a, of a table with somebody who does not want to do anything. First mm -hmm. of all, they're very, very, very lazy and they're sure you're wrong. Yeah. hundred percent. So <laughs> you have a way uphill battle. Yeah. <laughs> So getting them to, to, to practice uh, public speaking actually helps them in that, in that way. Um, and that's kind of what we do in a haunted hackers, try to get people that, you know, are coming into cybersecurity and, and teach them, you know, which route to go or, or take, you know, give them some sort of, you know, little advice. So I really appreciate you giving that to uh, the, the listeners, but uh, we're at the end of the hour, actually hour and a half. And I think that we could probably go on for hours between you and I, but we'll save that for a glass of scotch and a cigar at some point. And I'm glad to see I'm not the only one turning gray. That yeah, a, it's a lot of a lot of stress. Uh, a lot of years, man. A lot of years. <laughs> yeah, so, a lot but, of a lot of years. 
but I appreciate you coming I, on, Robert. I'm finally starting to look my age. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. But I appreciate you coming on and, and uh, you know, you're welcome anytime you want to come back. And, you know, if you want to co-host an episode with me, for sure, man, anytime. Love to, love to. Cool. All right. All right, see you, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Bye, guys.